Hi, everyone. I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, a podcast featuring insights from deal makers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by LionTree, a global merchant and investment bank. Today, we're pleased to host Verizon Communications Chairman and CEO Hans Vestberg as he sits down with LionTree CEO Arye Borkoff and discusses the company's massive response to the global pandemic and how Verizon's continued innovations will bolster the country's communication infrastructure now and into the future. This is certainly a timely topic, and we wish you continued health, safety, and productivity as we go through this together. Hi, everyone. I'm Arye Borkoff, and I'm pleased to welcome the chairman and CEO of Verizon, Hans Vestberg, to our Lion Tree podcast series, KindredCast. Hans, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us virtually in the middle of this crisis. You are running a $130 billion company on the front lines of the internet and voice connectivity, deemed an essential service, and you're doing it mostly from home, or one of your many crisis centers across the tri-state area. I know many of your employees are out there in the field making sure that this is all possible for us in this country and other countries. And I want to say personally that your leadership and that of your company, Verizon, during this time has been incredible. You've been on the front lines working closely with local governments, federal governments, other partners, your peer group like AT&T and others during this time, really putting the country first and your employees first and all of us first. Connectivity is what's holding together our entire system. And the uh, psychology right now is only possible to be optimistic and functional and productive because of our connectivity. It enables us to work, to learn, to communicate, to run our businesses, large and small, and to see our loved ones and families. So thank you very much for your leadership here. Thank you. Great to be on this podcast. Thanks, Hans. And uh, I want to start by jumping right into the situation at hand which is immense. You have vast power right now, 135,000 employees, millions of customers. How are you doing? How are you holding up? No, I think that first of all, uh, it is an unprecedented situation. And the first thing I've told all the leaders at Verizon is that there is no playbook that they can use because this has never happened before. I mean, we have some of us has been through the telecom crisis, the banking crisis. They were totally different in nature. This is a health crisis that is impacts people's health and survival. It's so different. So you need to drop the playbook that you had and you need to think about working in a different way. Of course, coming from uh, Verizon, we have had so many crises the last two, three years with all the natural disasters, with uh, tornadoes, uh, hurricanes, and such a devastation where our network becomes so important. So Partly, we have a system already set up for crisis management that we put in place five weeks ago. We have an uh, emergency operations center where my head of HR is leading that on a daily basis. And they run all the crisis management for employees, for customers, for society, and seeing that we're doing all the right things. And then I tried to split my leadership team so they actually work on the business as usual because 
as you rightfully said. I mean, we have 130 million consumers or subscribers on our wireless network. We basically serve 98% of the Fortune 500 companies in the world. We have federal governments and local governments that we're supporting. So we need to see that they are whole as well in this at the same time, thinking about all the regulations. So we were very early on, actually, on the governance piece of it. And I think if you have the governance right, you have a at least a better chance to manage to unprecedented situations where you actually don't have all the information and you have to actually constantly reevaluate yesterday's decisions. Well, take us back because it seems like an eternity ago, but when you first start looking at this COVID-19 socioeconomic threat, health crisis, economic crisis, crisis of humanity coming on, you can look at different leaders and different managers really having the path to figuring out whether it was real or not, how quick you have to make decisions, how quick to act. When did you first start seeing it come on? And you had the system in place, given what you mentioned as crisis management, but how did you turn it on and when? We have employees globally. So we, of course, we have employees uh, in Hong Kong area and Taiwan, uh, partly in China. So we saw this coming pretty early on in February. And then, of course, it rolled into the U.S. So we, I think we activated our crisis management somewhere the first or second week of March. So we are on our fifth or sixth week where we run this company in a different fashion and mode. So uh, that's when we start to understand it. And then, of course, we got pretty early on huge demand from uh, especially large enterprises and government because they need to move so much workforce to the home to work from home and seeing that they enable that and and of course certain enterprises were better prepared than others they had already infrastructure up and vpn links others had much less of it so you also felt that pretty early on with the business continuity coming up from many large enterprises but we have been ongoing for this more than five weeks now yeah because organizationally Every company is different, but for Verizon, your frontline employees is almost like a military operation where the frontline employees are in the field, really in service of your customers every single day. So the people that are in the corporate office almost have to be supporting those frontline employees and the corporate office who are obviously um, leaders, really are serving the frontline employees, right? Is that how you think about it? Yeah, that's how we think about it. We actually defined our mission in this crisis very early on. And uh, the mission is, number one, safe and health of our employees. And number two, keeping the networks up that are so essential for the country. That means that every meeting we have, we basically think about that, or we're doing right for both of them, and in that order. And uh, we have 115,000 people working from home right now. That means that 20,000 is, is either out in the front line or uh, in a store serving customers that are uh, in need of a critical or essential infrastructure in order to operate. So yes, of course, we've evolved tremendously on our rules and regulations, but we're very early on to stop home uh, visits from our field engineers. Uh, very early on with all the, we did the garages from home, meaning our field technicians are not gatherings in the morning. They actually bring the cars home and go from there. So we didn't have any social gatherings. We have a meeting between eight and nine every morning with our executive team, where we take all those decisions. And then the executive team continue to work on the normal business as usual. And the uh, emergency crisis uh, team is actually taking care of that then for the next 24 hours until we come back. So we try to spend one hour and still today we take decisions every day. That's how fluid this situation is. And then you add that we have 
50 states in this country and we have hundreds of countries where we operate, there are different regulations. Even on a county level, it could be different regulations, what is essential infrastructure or not, and we need to keep track on that. How often are you talking to the employers? Because obviously you have to keep morale high, you need business continuity, you need business excellence. How do you do that? What are the best practices? So we decided, I think, four weeks ago that you have no playbooks. We've never done it before. So we decided that we have a live webcast at lunchtime every day at noon, where I and the head of our crisis management, Christy, our head of HR, are together, sometimes with a guest or not. So I speak to all my employees every day at noon to 20, 25 minutes. Usually we have somewhere between 50 to 60,000 attendees, and we've had that for four weeks meaning 20 times every day. So we just had one today and uh, we continue to do that. We actually do it externally. So even external people, journalists, media, competitors are probably listening to it because some of our technicians, they have their own devices and they cannot come to an intranet. So for us, it's more important to reach them than that we're also doing it externally. So we do that every day. And as long as we see the questions coming in and people are attending, we're going to continue to have that very unusual way of being on TV every day. I missed the one today, obviously. So uh, tell me, what, what did you guys talk about today? What was the topic of the show? Today, we talked about the innovation that we have done in the field. So our field technicians have now a virtual installer, so they don't need to go into the homes. So basically, they come outside the home, and then they actually have a virtualized app for the customer in home to do the installation themselves on Fios, which is something we never thought was possible. We talked about the new ways we're dealing with customers in the stores. And then, of course, update them some positive things we're doing with them. Pay it forward, which is an enormous success, which is for small and medium businesses. So that's what today's program were all about. How are you talking to the board? Obviously, you have many constituents, including your board of directors, which is a, obviously a very established board for a company of your size. When did you first start alerting the board and say, we have a bigger crisis on our hands here and here's how we're going to deal with it? I think my first letter to the board was when we established our emergency crisis operation, and that's probably five weeks ago. And since then, we have the more frequent updates. We probably have some three, four board meetings since then. I do them short in order to keep them updated because they're equally anxious and curious and understanding how we're dealing with this. So I think communication becomes in a different way. So we don't have long board meetings of eight hours. We do them short and sweet in order to get the right information for the board so they can both act and see that we're doing the right things. Makes sense. And then for the network, has the network been stable and strong? And how do you uh, prioritize certain customers over another? Because you have government agencies, you have individual customers. Everyone's bandwidth needs have increased tremendously, right? Yeah, we have seen a surge in data. And uh, if you go back to the baseline, which was basically when all this started, we are 115% up on gaming in the network. We're up to 55% more VPN in the network. The busy hour of the network have moved from the afternoon to the mornings. Actually, we have seen social networking going down. Of course, we see a lot of video on demand going up. But when you now come into week over week, we see very little changes. So after four weeks right now, you have seen a surge and a total new patterns of using the network and applications. But now week over week is basically small movements, 1% here and there. Secondly, what we've seen is the mobile handoffs as we're running and the largest wireless operator in this country. We can see when people move between the different radio cells. 
Right now in the country, we are down 35% since the baseline, meaning 35% movements in the country. And in cities like New York, it's over 50% down. So people are moving much less. They're home. And uh, we can see that pattern. Uh, so it's also a social change, a surge of data, and application change. The network holds up very well. Of course, we prioritize the first responders. But so far, we have even increased 15 gig for all our metered customers of wireless, etc. But the network holds up very well. We haven't seen any main challenges. And then how about certain pockets of the country that are not known for having a robust network because of the topography or because of the density and they're not built out as much? Are you seeing like in certain rural areas that they're having any issues or is there anything that you could do for those areas to increase the connectivity? No, we have not. We have actually managed very well in the network and we have not seen any major weaknesses. Of course, we work with the crisis response centers that are set up in the country, over 200 of them from the federal government. And of course, they put them in places where usually you don't have connectivity so good. So we have been following them, seeing that they have connectivity in those places. Our field forces out there and seeing that our network is both maintained, but also adding capacity where it's needed. We early on uh, leased some extra capacity, meaning uh, spectrum, and yeah. we have deployed that as well. But that was more from precaution. So far, we have deployed quite a lot of it, and of course, it's increased our robustness on the network right now. Yeah, now, obviously, your customers are loyal to Verizon today and into the future, but we've also, as this country has experienced a health crisis, also there's an economic crisis, and upwards of 10 to 15 million people have already lost their jobs in unemployment in this country. Do you worry about people not being able to pay their bills long-term or having some relief there? You have such a big crisis, you cannot start thinking about that. We have already right now told all the residential customers and small and medium businesses, if they cannot pay, if they if they have late fees, if the overage is on the account, we're not going to disconnect them right now. I mean, that's not what you do right now. So over time, we're going to see how that hits our financials. But I think that's a short-term discussion. I think long-term, it's right for the company. It's right for the country to do these type of things, to see that you're actually supporting your customers that are the most vulnerable in a situation like this. And as I said before, we also increased for all our wireless customers, 15 gig to all of them automatically, which are meet the plan. Our broadband offering is already unlimited. Yeah, you know, it's really a common theme that we're seeing. Well, first, you have your health in place. That's the most yeah. important thing. Then you have your organizational structure and systems working effectively in place. Then you put people over your profits. And then you look to liquidity and business continuity before you get to maximizing your potential opportunistically. And we're very much in this people over profits mode. Yeah, and I think that the size of company that I'm fortunate enough to, to run, of course, you have a huge responsibility in the society. And especially when you have a crisis like this, we run basically all our meetings right now based on an agenda on the four stakeholders, employees, customers, shareholders, and society. And to see that we have a balance in what we're doing all the time, because it's very easy in a crisis mode that you only attend the ones that are screaming the most. And here it's very important that you have a balance with the priority I talked about before. Number one, employees. Number two, the network. And then seeing that you do right in all these four buckets. And I think we have a healthy debate about it. And we do a lot also for society right now. And it's absolutely right. I have shareholders. I need to attend them as well. I mean, they are probably more worried than normal because this is a special time. So you talk more to them as well. So I think you just need to be very transparent how you see the situation. 
and see that you speak to all the constituencies in a situation like this. I saw a release that you did a partnership with the New York Times to give 14 million students free internet access, right? Can you describe yeah. that? As an extension of our work with education, where we basically have a lot of schools that are underprivileged and are not having connectivity, etc. We have already connectivity, broadband and devices and the STEM education for those. And we have the partnership for those 250 schools to have New York Times. Now we're extending it to all high schools in the United States. And that basically the 14 million high school students and the teachers to have access to all the education material and all their online news content from New York Times. So it's the right time to do it because it's sometimes you read relevant and good information is now. So and many of the students are studying from home. So that we launched last week, I think on Monday. Time is flying. Every week seems like a new era. So getting through it. I also feel like obviously you're a public company but funded with non-government funds, yet Verizon given your size and given your leadership you're working with government at all levels right now, at least in the United States. We were fortunate enough to have a call with the president of the United States together with a few other network providers and talking about common interests and themes and obviously also marrying macro policy like net neutrality, which this country obviously has embraced with the output of a strong broadband ecosystem. You've also worked with local governments and state governments. How do you, how do you talk about how your responsibility as a CEO of Verizon is to work alongside all levels of government. Now nah, it's big, but because I mean, the government oversee many of the most critical infrastructure in the country, like now, like hospitals, first responders in general. We always have a very big business with these type of entities, and in these times, it becomes even more important. So, of course, we have priority in our network with first responders. We serve all the hospitals that is asking us because we need to do it, and our brave uh, technicians, of course, with all the security and all the safe and healthy regulations are doing it so now we work with all of them and but it's not only in the us it's actually globally as well as as our backbone and our uh, fiber network and our uh, cable networks and close to global is of course important so now this is important times that you work with both the public and the private to see that you as a company are doing the right things and supporting the most vulnerable people and organization at the moment which really needs your support let me move on to uh 5g which is a core part of Verizon's strategy and the industry's focus right now. Before I get into the strategy, let's debunk the theory that 5G in any way is tied to this virus. Because I saw some press articles about that and I didn't really understand where it came from, but can you talk about that and just debunk that for everybody here? Yeah, that we have really, really hard to understand as well. There are no correlation. We can just say that that is a sort of the fake news that you see in today's times, but there's no connection between 5G and this virus. Uh, absolutely zero. Okay, that's clear. I was going to ask you about, given your business practices focusing on the criticality of the moment, whether there are some challenges about innovation and what's coming next and how you deploy that. Obviously, you have to focus on the here and now and the essentials. Has something like your 5G deployment and your rollout schedule and the plan for that been delayed somewhat because of this? It's obviously understandable. No, we're, well, we, we haven't talked so much about it as we're going into a, an earnings cycle, right? Also a little bit cautious, but we are fully focused to see that our 5G network is coming up. Uh, we have uh, said externally that we have no interruption in our supply chain. 
So we will continue to be very focused on 5G. We think it's also the next step of technology, both for consumer, for enterprises, and for our home solutions. So this is important uh, to create even more resilience and more potential for innovation, which ultimately, when we come out from this pandemic, it's going to be a new normal. And I think that technology will play an even more vital role. And that's why we think that the 5G and the fiber that we're deploying will become even more important. How so? I mean, what will 5G give the country, starting with the U.S., that we don't have today? And how will it be rolled out? And who's going to proportionally benefit more than others? The big thing with 5G is that 5G has eight capabilities compared to 2G to 4G, which basically have throughput and speed. 5G is designed with distinct different capabilities, everything from low latency that is so much lower than today, the throughput speeds, better lifetime, not only that, also how long you can keep a signal alive when you are on the speed train or something like that. So all of them are designed actually to address enterprises to not having cords at the end of the rope, but also a lot of benefits from consumers. And ultimately, uh, as we see it, we have three business cases. One is from consumer getting much higher throughput and latency, ultimate AR, VR, new experiences. When it comes to 5G home, is of course a substitution for having 5G at the home instead of having fiber. I think in these times, it's not even going to be more important because ultimately, the fiber deployment today, you need dishes coming to your home, etc. This is a self-setup. Finally, we have the 5G mobile edge compute, where you basically bring out the compute and storage to the edge in order to get enormous low latency, much higher security and throughput. Where our first launched 5G mobile edge compute center was together with Amazon. So I see three different. So we address the full society for an all type of customers with our 5G deployment. This year, we have announced that we our plans is to do five times more 5G radio base station than the previous year, which is uh, enormously up the game this year. And we also said that we're going to do a nationwide launch this year and we're going to continue to be focused on also on cities, stadiums, where you benefit tremendously from our 5G ultra wideband. When are we going to start seeing it in the major markets like New York? One thing in this country which we have to realize is that many of the consumers actually have an Apple phone. And Apple doesn't have a 5G phone yet. That moment will be very important for this country, even though we have great Samsung phones out on 5G and LGs, etc. The high degree and market share of Apple will define a little bit that we as consumers start seeing it in a much different way. Enterprises already see it because we work with all of them and what they can do with it. So it's more from the consumer point of view. I think that's going to be an important moment in time. Do you view 5G as a service that's going to take market share from others or just sort of an advancement? How do you think about the cable industry in the dynamic of 5G? I know you have a partnership with some companies like Charter, but you also potentially could be competitors down the road, right? On my mobility side, we are the leader in this market. I see, of course, that we should continue to have that lead and extend it with our 5G offering. The 5G home is, of course, a market which I'm not into more than in the Northeast where I have Fios. Of course, that's new business for us. And 5G mobile edge compute is totally nascent. Nobody's in there today. We are the first in the world on the 5G mobile edge compute. So I see sort of a defend, extend, and a new opportunities with 5G in the three different models. So that's how we approach it. And that's how we structure our governance in our company. That's how we 
basically as an executive team meet on a monthly basis to review these three business cases and the build of the network because we only build the network once and it's a networking service and you get the maximum utilization on the investment you're doing because you actually serve different business cases with the same infrastructure. Yeah. Now, one of the things that we've been talking about a lot and even the theme that we had on a, a panel at the recent conference we went to, probably the last conference for a while, was scale players in motion. And you're one of those scale players, partially benefited by the fact that you have a great balance sheet and that therefore you could see opportunities. How strong is liquidity? How strong is the balance sheet? Any concerns there? Are you, when do you start playing offense? I said, first of all, uh, it's easy to play offense, you know, saying that you're going here and there. I think that in our case, we have defined our competitive advantages. It's a network. It's the distribution. We're distributing uh, to more consumers than anybody else. We're working more large enterprises and governments than anybody else. So, of course, that's two competitive advantages. And the last one is our brand. We think and we know that our brand is viewed as the strongest in the market. So that's my scale. It's not the scale in other areas. So I think that every company needs to build on the scales that they have and the competitive advantage we have. In those areas, I can see ourselves, of course, taking advantage. That doesn't mean I'm going to be super good uh, if I would go into building bicycles or something because I'm big. I would just be useless because I don't have the culture. I don't have the the distribution to sell bicycles. Again, it's easy to say that the big uh, scalable company can be good and everything, but you have to go back. Where do we have the scale and the skill? Where can we really compete? And that's what we've done. And that's why we went back to our strategy, which is we call as a network service. And we partner much more. And I think the market have seen our exclusive agreements with Disney Plus, Apple Music, Amazon, because these are areas where I bring something to the table, they bring something to the table, and in totality, it becomes something more. That's our strategy, and it comes back much to your question. I do scale and size where I have the competitive advantages, not in the other areas. So you'd end up partnering instead of owning in those cases, which makes sense, given yeah. the examples you mentioned. But we've noticed in this period of time that what you take for granted at one point in time can become an asset, and that's why I say cash or liquidity or balance sheet flexibility now has become a real asset as a differentiator. So you could look at opportunities that you never would see before as long as you could gain the expertise to manage them. Is that part of the mindset? Not necessarily for today, but into the future. Yeah, I think that you constantly evaluate yourself, how you can do better and using your assets. And and I think the team has done a great job with our balance sheet and we had an ambition to get into a beta ratio to net debt below two or between 175 and two. They were gone from a long way because we bought Dafoe in 2015, which of course uh, increased our debt leverage. But we are very close to the two to 175 right now. So of course that puts us in a good situation. But we also have said we're very clear on our capital priorities. Number one is to the business. That's capex and whatever else I need. And then number two, it's dividend. And number three is debt reduction. So we're very clear on how we want to use the capital. And then the fourth one is share buyback whenever that's going to happen, given that you do the three other first because they are in order of priority. So we feel good about that. And you, as a might so, I mean, when we started the corona pandemic here, we decided to increase our CAPEX. We said that for this year, the guidance, we said that this year, we want to be sure that we continue to have the best high-quality network in the country and the most robust. And if it's needed, we need to have more. We want to be prepared. But we also thought it was the right for the country, Yeah, that the ones that can invest should invest, and we can. 
Well, you mentioned this concept of use of capital and stock buybacks and capex, and you're clear about your priorities. You're also living in a moment, we're living in a moment where certain companies are not as well situated as yours, given the coronavirus, like the airlines or other companies that need to get bailed out. And you've seen unprecedented support from both the Fed, as well as the administration and the government to put a lot of capital into the system, maybe even bailing out companies all the way into below investment grade land, which is also unprecedented, because you don't need the government money, I'm assuming. Do you therefore have more flexibility in the future? Because you could do things like buybacks, where everyone else is going to be having to have certain restrictions over their capital. And how do you feel about the Fed helping some companies versus other companies in terms of like changing the playing field right now? First of all, I think it's too early to judge how it will pan out I and mean, who will use and what type of restriction. The second question that the Fed is helping companies, I think that's right. We are in an unprecedented situation. And of course, the most vulnerable people, companies, uh, they need to have help in these times. So I don't have any problems with that. And the companies that are supporting them will need also the help. It's a combination of private and public that needs to help in a crisis like that. I mean, I serve 98% of the Fortune 500. I mean, some of them are in good shape. Some have a really tough situation because the revenue is not just going away. So you need to work with all of them in different levels and how you can support them in these times. Yeah. Well, a few questions for you about things outside of your company right now that you're interested in. So one is I know that you're a big sports fan. You're a runner yourself. You have partnerships with the NFL and other uh, sports entities and leagues. That's an area that has been totally disrupted by the virus and obviously live events in general. With that comes a lot of different economic changes that could occur near term and long term around sports rights and teams and what the cost of putting on a football game is, American football versus, let's say, tennis or golf. How do you think about the sports and live events industry changing as a result of wow. this? Yeah, I spend a lot of time on the sports and, of course, being so close to NBA and NFL, of course, having a chance to talk to them, but also that we work with all the content owners, etc. So, so, of course, I usually ask that question, not you asking me, because I want to learn as well. I don't know, to be honest. I think what's going to happen, that technology will continue to play a vital role in all the sports we have. It's going to be a gradual back to the stadiums. One of the enjoyments is, of course, sports for many people, and that entertainment has to come back as soon as possible as well. But it will not be in the same shape and format as we've seen before, at least when it comes back in the beginning. So... It beats me how it will turn out. I think we, at least that technology will play an even wider role than we have seen before. And it will probably take some time before we see full stadiums. But hopefully we will, because that's one of the enjoyments in life to attend sports. But it's an unprecedented time for them as well. I remember just before the crisis, you and I were supposed to go to a, a Knicks game at Madison Square Garden together. And obviously it got postponed for a lot of reasons. So if I invited you today, hypothetically, when's the earliest you would feel comfortable going to a Knicks game with me and being there as a business as usual? So now it depends on Knicks more than uh, anything else. <laughs> now, I don't know. We have a team that works close by with all the federal uh, authorities and, of course, to get the information. And, and to be honest, the information is updated all the time. It's hard for me to say when it's going to feel comfortable to go to a game and attend it live again, hopefully sooner than later. That's the best guess I can give you. Okay, so not never. <laughs> no, no, not never. No, hopefully not. Absolutely not. No, no. We, we're going to go come back to school. 
Well, the other dynamic that changed or that happened during this crisis is quietly the T-Mobile Sprint deal closed. And also Dish Network is now thought to be building out a new network. How do you feel about your competitive environment shifting now, given these factors in the middle of this crisis, especially? It's not like a surprise. It's been talked about for two years, so I don't think it's a big surprise to us. I said it publicly so many times. We are not changing our strategy for that type of changes in the market environment. We feel good about our strategy. We just execute faster and harder on it. That's our job. Competition is going to be there and has been there before, so nothing new with that. So for us, it's actually to execute on our strategy rather than having a new strategy because we have a new landscape. That doesn't change for us. It could be some tactical issues here and there, but the overall strategy doesn't change for Verizon. On your front foot, very much on you're playing your own game. Um, yes. I want to end up by asking, where else do you get some peace of mind and some inspiration from these days? Are you listening to podcasts, doing any other media, any leadership inspiration for me or others to follow here? No, <laughs> I have very little. I don't look at TV. I don't read much. I have a great team around me that gives me all the information that's relevant for me to make my decision. I have a very diverse team. Usually for me to get energy and inspiration, I train and I train a lot. That's really where I spend my time right now, either in the bicycling or being out running with the safe distance of social distancing and all of that. But that's for me is the way to get energy these times. My role is more to give energy to others, maybe than to myself. Uh, my job right now is to see that my team members, my organization, my wider Verizon family is feeling good and I spend an enormous lot of time to calling them, tweeting them or texting them to see that everybody's fine in these times because there's going to be a lot of lonely people and people that don't know what to do. My job is to see that they feel at least some reassurance about the situation, even though I don't have all the answers, but I'm there for them. And that's how I spend my time and my hours right now when I'm not sleeping. Well, I'm grateful for it on a personal level because you're one of the people that have been texting me and reaching out to me, checking on me and seeing how I'm doing. And I really appreciate it. It's something that's not necessary, but very heartwarming to know that you have friends out there and I can rely on you as a friend and a peer and obviously uh, someone that we can do business with. And I'm very grateful that you could be here with us today and sharing your insights and good luck with everything. Uh, health first, but uh, the way you're doing with the company and your employees and keeping our connectivity uh, strong is uh, commendable. And I thank you very much on behalf of everybody. Thank you very much. Thanks, Hans. Take care. Take care. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, find us and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review as well as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on social media at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Listen to Kindred Cast on Sirius XM every Saturday and Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern on Business Radio Channel 132 or stream shows on demand in the Sirius XM app. Audiation.